Here's the second comment. I have three preliminary comments. So the first one was just about what is, what is a Christian aesthetic. Here's the second comment. Why should Christians develop a Christian aesthetic? Here's one reason. It's partly because we're saturated in media. It's everywhere. It's unescapable and unavoidable. There's no getting away from advertising entertainment, social media, movies, books, TV shows, music. We're inundated with artistic media at every point in our lives, and we have to develop a biblical method of judging what is good and what's bad. This has not always been the case, by the way, in terms of just how much we're saturated with media. People living in the 18th and 19th centuries would have not had this problem in the same way. Those people, long ago, were living in, an, in a period of media scarcity. If you wanted to get a message from Texas to Maine, there was a lot of steps involved, and, and none of those steps was going to move faster than a horse or a, or a steam engine. Uh, in the 20th century, those problems of, of communication were solved to stunning effect and solved so effectively that the problem we have today is a problem not of media scarcity, but of media glut, media saturation. We need a biblical aesthetic to help us judge between media that is edifying and, uh, and forms of art that are harmful. We need a Christian aesthetic also because the Bible commands us to sing in worship. There's, there, there are aesthetic implications, even in the ordering of the local church and in how we conduct our services as we craft new songs to the Lord, as we choose and select songs and poems and texts to, uh, to incorporate in our worship. How do we do this? We must have some way of judging what artistic expression is appropriate to the setting of the local church. So that's the second comment. Why is aesthetics relevant to the believer? And then one more preliminary comment is about the current worldview toward aesthetics in our culture. We are living in an age, I think, this is undeniable, of aesthetic relativism. Most people in America today assume that artistic meaning is a matter of individual taste and preference alone. In fact, we bristle at the notion that our taste in the arts, especially in music, might be judged by someone else or something else. Even the word aesthetics itself is a symptom of this relativistic worldview. Think about the word aesthetics and how closely it's related to the word anesthesia. Anesthesia medically is going to remove or take away feeling, and that's what the ana is doing, or the, maybe just the an at the beginning of that word, is, is the, the absence of feeling, right? So if we now subtract the prefix from that word, we're just left with aesthetics. And so the word itself means feeling. And by, uh, by framing our intake of media in the terms of merely feeling, we're already expressing a worldview about what it is. This is our idea in our culture, that the experience of art, whether it's listening to music or looking at a painting or watching a play or even being inside of a building, this experience in the contemporary worldview, belongs only to us and that the experience cannot be judged or changed. It's distinct from knowledge. It's distinct from objective truth. It is something individual and private, as private as when you feel heartburn, right? It's, just, it's only you that's feeling that. Well, this is the view that our artistic choices are just as private. And how dare someone uh, uh, tell us that we're feeling something wrong if it's merely a matter of feeling. This is... Uh, 
certainly the approach that my students at the university level take, and just that age group where they associate their aesthetic preferences so closely with their own personal identity that to be critical of their choices, they interpret that as an attack on their personhood, and it's very dramatic. So those are my three preliminary comments. First, that a Christian aesthetic will seek to understand artistic meaning on the basis of the Bible in conjunction with our natural revelation. Second, that a Christian aesthetic is needed due to the sheer quantity uh, and, and scope and volume of media that we're bomb- bombarded with every day, including in the context of the local church. And third, that our current cultural attitude toward aesthetics is to assume that it's purely subjective. So, with that, shall we turn to the scriptures? And this morning I've selected as our starting point uh, Matthew chapter 15. This is an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. So, if you have a text of the Bible, turn to Matthew 15. I'm going to sample a little bit here just to uh, buy us back some time. And I'll start reading now, even as you're finding your way to Matthew 15. It says, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. They sound like my mom. And so why are the disciples of Jesus eating without washing their hands? Jesus answers their objection later in verse 10. Jesus calls the people to him and he says to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Now, skip forward to verse 15 and we get more clarification. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us, as if it was not clear. And then verse 16, Jesus says, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So the Pharisees are upset because Jesus' disciples are eating food without cleansing their hands. This violates their Pharisaical tradition. But Jesus turns the tables on the Pharisees and says that they're hypocrites. They they care about clean hands, but not about clean hearts. And so Jesus spins their complaint upside down. It's not the things that go into the mouth that defile a person. Yes, It's it's the things that come out of his mouth. Now what are we talking about here? What are the things that come out of the mouth? Well, Jesus explains that it's the things that emerge from a corrupt and sinful heart. All of the things that are motivated from this heart of wickedness that are are, then, then spill forth through our communication and through our actions and through our behavior. And it's obviously, when he talks about things that come out of the mouth, we've moved beyond merely food. Jesus is not talking about throwing up. He's talking about at least in part, communication, what we say, the lies and, and slanders that come out of the human mouth. You see, communication is deeply moral. The words that come out of our mouths can be used of great good, but they can also be used for great harm. We have an enormous capacity for expression. This is a blessing. This is part, in my view, this is part of the imago Dei, the image of God, given by God to Adam and Eve, and by extension, the entire human race. This ability to express 
using either concrete or abstract ideas. It's a wonderful thing. But what we express, what we say, is subject to moral judgment to the extent that we're able to say anything genuinely. And Jesus is telling us not only that it is possible for us to say bad things, but that saying bad things has the potential to deeply defile us, to defile us more severely than just eating dirty food. Okay, so, what kinds of defiling things can come out of people's mouths? Now, it's easy to think of some examples off the tops of our heads, and Jesus lists several examples as well. Clearly, profanity, crude speech, the telling of lies, gossip, slander. All of these are easy to think of. These will defile us when we indulge in them. They are, these are sinful ways of using our ability to communicate. But I want to suggest that there are many other forms of communication. There are many forms, and I use that word forms in a technical sense. There are many forms in which we convey ideas. So let's not restrict this category of human communication to only true or false factual information. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that we just need to use the correct factual propositions when we speak. And if we do so, then we're good. We're now exempt from what Jesus has to say about defiling things coming out of the mouth. It's so much more than that. Jesus is not just telling us not to tell lies. He is, I think, warning us that all the forms we use to express meaning carry with them the possibility of misuse and wickedness. Any form of communication, to the extent that it carries meaning, is subject to moral judgment, and it can be used to edify or to corrupt. So Jesus' phrase, what comes out of the mouth, is not referring just to propositional language, nor is it referring to only those forms that are literally spoken. Jesus is using the spoken word, I think, as a stand-in for all other forms. So, for instance, one can tell a lie with one's voice, mouth, or you can not use your voice. You can write down the lie and go publish it, and yet you are culpable of the same sin or a similar sin, a subset of the same genre of sin, even though you've never used your voice. Now let's pause and just consider how many different forms of communication there are, and this is by no means exhaustive. Think of the gradations of function between, I just listed a bunch of spoken forms. Lecture, like kind of what I'm doing here, is a form of communication. A political speech, I wonder why that came to mind these days, is a form of communication. Uh, A recitation, like if you're reciting a poem in a dramatic way to an audience. Casual conversation is another form of spoken communication. A comedy routine, news broadcast, TV drama, documentary narration, podcast, interviews, debates. These are all different forms. Written communication is equally diverse. We have, think of the genres of books that you can go purchase at a local bookstore. Histories, novels, fantasy stories. You might read advice columns in the newspapers. You might read blogs. You might read poetry or scientific journals or weather reports, or even road signs. All of these are forms of written communication. Within the Bible itself, we find a diversity of forms and genres. We have history, and myth, and fantasy, and poetry, and proverb, and prophecy, and parable, and epistles, and many more. We can expand the category of communication further still. We can communicate through countless non-verbal, 
So tone of voice, for example, would be a strong non-propositional medium of communication. From tone alone, you can convey the opposite meaning to the words that you're saying. If, um, if, uh, if someone does a, a genuinely great job at something, you can say, great job, in a way that is sincere. But if, they, if you're making fun of them because they just tripped over their shoelace or something, you can be like, oh, great job. And you're showing, using the same words, propositionally it has the same surface meaning, but the tone of voice is saying the contrary of what the meaning of the words is. Tone is powerful. Body language would be a form of communication. How we choose to dress is a form of communication. There's a reason that I'm wearing this today. I'm not in basketball shorts. I'm not in a tuxedo today. And it's not, I should say this too, it's not because basketball shorts are morally wrong or that a tuxedo is morally wrong. Those ways of dressing have their function and context in which they are appropriate. And so it's not immediately an issue of morality. It's an issue of what are these things designed to do? What's the appropriate context for them? And a Sunday school is not the appropriate context for basketball shorts or for a tux. Now, we might feel like we've drifted from the text. I mean, Jesus Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Here we're talking about basketball shorts. The, The point is that the forms of communication are myriad, and any form of communication, written or spoken, verbal or nonverbal, can be misused to subvert, degrade, defile. What I'm suggesting is that for every clear-cut and obvious defiling form of communication, the clear ones, the lying and the slander, there are also less clear but equally potent defiling forms. Let me give you some more examples. So in the uh, 1800s, many liberal German theologians were pretty openly denying the supernatural component of Christianity, which is to deny the the most basic doctrines of what the Christian religion asserts. And these theologians would, uh, in their books, write this out in a propositional way, denying the supernatural propositionally. So that's one way to do it. But you can also use words in a different way, not to deny outright or through argument, but to mock and sneer at holy things. This is what I think of with many, many irreverent comedies, like on TV, where the Christian characters or the things of God or churches are displayed in a way that maybe isn't like a, a, a treatise against Christianity, but it's a feeling against Christianity. It's a way of showing them to be Christians to be uptight or silly or ridiculous or whatever it may be. Both of these ways of using words can defile. Here's another example. Uh, you can seek to persuade people away from Christianity, away from Christianity, by delivering a propositional argument. Some of you may have, at one point in your life, uh, watched a debate involving Christopher Hitchens, a very famous atheist who passed away a couple years ago. Uh, Hitchens was a a formidable debater, and uh, Richard Dawkins would fit into this same category, Sam Harris. These guys will debate and will try to argue and persuade their audiences using words that Christianity is foolish. You could go a different route, though. You could, for instance, write a story. Write a fiction, make up a story that also seeks to undermine the Christian faith. A completely different way of using words that is trying to accomplish a similar thing. And so a wonderful example, a wonderful, a a good example of this very bad thing is um, a trilogy written by uh, Philip Pullman, British author, uh, called the uh, his his dark materials. Your favorite books? 
they kill God. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the anti-Narnia. You know, there's children. It's a, it's a different world. And yeah, sure. Well, now that we've spoiled it, yeah. At the end, they, uh, the 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 the, we, the children kill the Ancient of Days inadvertently, but they do, and it's it's celebrated. It's a, it's an it's a reverse of Paradise Lost, where they're it's they're trying to get the anyway. It doesn't matter. It's 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 bad, but it's very effective, in a completely different form than what Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins would use. By the way, you can also do this from within Christianity, maybe unintentionally. I think there are well-meaning Christians who end up degrading Christianity from the inside by writing sentimental potboiler novels that turn Christianity into a Hallmark movie. This is maybe a less severe case of still this problem of using words in, uh, in, in, in a, in a non-argumentative um, way that still affects and, and is a form of defiling of, of, uh, of our shared belief. What about defiling forms of communication that are non-verbal, that don't use words at all? So now we're moving into the, into the other arts. There's a, uh, there's a well-known, uh, within certain circles, sculpture that I'm going to describe for you. I'm not going to give you the title of the sculpture because the title itself is kind of obscene. You can look it up, but I'm just going to describe it to you. And the description also is edgy. It is, uh, this sculpture took a crucifix and uh, immersed it in a jar of his own urine. And then that was the, and then you put it on a pedestal and there it is. There's the, put a little placard next to it. That's the piece of art. And this is... Uh, such a basic way of um, uh, scorning Christianity, of making it, um, well, it's doing what it's doing, right? So this, it's not using words. There's no, there are no words involved, and yet we know exactly what the artist thinks about Christianity and about the Lord Jesus. You could do this a different way. You could trivialize our Lord by representing him in art as a silly cartoon, something cartoonish. You could put that in a children's Bible and make lots of money. In architecture, you can present the gathering place of God's people as a brutal suspension of massive concrete blocks. This is literally the brutalist style of architecture. Or you can present the gathering place of God's people as a smoky stage with lasers and with darkened theater seats. These are architectural decisions that affect how we feel, how we're meant to feel about the local church. Even in how we dress, I mentioned that this is this is a thing. You can transgress Christians, Christian norms in an open and obvious way by dressing immodestly. And I know there, even that, there's, there's lots of debate about, well, okay, what's immodest and what's modest. But sir, we can all think of examples of immodest dress. But you can also dress in a way that is technically completely modest and still is seeking to um, express total rebellion against authority and nature. So what I have in mind here is a man choosing to dress as a woman modestly, let's say, even puritanically, but still, or as an animal, still militating against uh, nature. Both of these ways of using our clothing to express are going to defile. Here's the point. All of these terrible things I've listed are very real and prominent examples of human communication about God which misrepresent and debase Him. Not all of them use words. Some of them are nonverbal. And not all of the ones that do use words use direct propositional language. Terms and syllogisms and arguments. All these examples are meant to illustrate the broad scope of possible human expression. And what they all have in common is that they 
are defiling forms of speech. Now, here's something interesting. In a poem or a song, you're, you're, in a song, let's say, you're bringing together two different artistic forms. You're bringing together the artistic form of the words and you're bringing in the form of the music. You can make a serious subject appear trivial by mismatching these two aspects of the form. In fact, you can even do this just within a poem. So just a poem, you have the factual meaning of the words, but you also have the form of the poem, which is the decisions of meter and rhyme and so on. And you can make what is factually true seem to be less true or foolish by uh, 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 distorting the form of the poem. Here's an example it's a poem about the attribute of God's omnipresence, God is everywhere, that makes it nevertheless seem foolish and silly. I'm just going to read you this poem. It goes like this. God is here. God is there. God, you see, is everywhere. He's up your nose, between your toes. He dwells inside your garden hose. Now, what exactly is wrong with this poem? The factual propositional content is entirely true and accurate. God is indeed in all of the places that the poem lists. But the poem taken as a whole, I think, is a kind of falsehood because, it takes the, because the factual meaning of the words has been organized within a silly form. The rhyme, the meter scheme, the jingling quality, the limerick quality convey a triteness that undercuts the sober reality that God is present everywhere. So this illustrates this interesting aesthetic rule. When a serious concept is conveyed through a silly form, the net result is not a redemption of the silly form to be serious, but a degrading of the serious content to be silly. The nonverbal medium determines what can be said through verbal propositions. Let's take another example. Uh, this is a very serious set of verbal propositions uh, organized as a poem. This is reflecting on Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. Some of you might recognize this. It goes like this. For me, it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. This is a serious and weighty and profound text. But notice what is changed when I sing it to the tune to which it was written, at a certain tempo and with a certain inflection, and we have to suspend our... You want me to play, too? <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, so, again, this, this profound text... Uh, what would it be a good game? For me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but mine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Okay, so what, what has changed now once we've paired this serious text with music that is silly? The result is boisterous. Uh, and it's, I think it's irreverent. I think it's inappropriate. I think it's tragic. It's a toe-tapper when what we should be feeling is profound sorrow and wonder and grief at the, uh, at the passion of our Savior. Now, let's return to the silly rhyme, the one that God is here, God is there, God is everywhere. And let's ask, how might one fix this? So let's take the same doctrine of God's omnipresence. What would a good setting of that be? What would a good poem, how would a good poem treat that 
uh, topic. And so for this, turn in your hymnals really quickly to hymn number 250. Hymn 250. You all know this one. And here we have a much more nuanced and appropriate expression of God's omnipresence. Hymn 250, this is, I sing the mighty power of God. Verse 3, let's just read this. I'll read it to you. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy, your glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care and everywhere that man can be. Thou, God, art present there. The doctrine of God's omnipresence in a form that does not militate against the propositional content, but that supports and abets it and makes it memorable and makes it appropriate for use in congregational worship. Now, here's where maybe things will get controversial because I don't consider the judgments I've been expressing to you about these different examples to be subjective. I do not think that these are subjective Judgments. In other words, it's not my arbitrary artistic taste that's kicking in when I describe these things. I don't think it's my arbitrary taste that's telling me that God is here, God is there, God you see is everywhere is silly. I don't think that's just me. I think it's something that's inherent in the form. I'm just taking these things at face value for what they're communicating. Silly songs convey silliness. Brutalist architecture conveys brutality. It's right there in the name. Sentimental romances convey sentimentality. Cartoon Jesus is going to be cartoonish. These things are not subjective in their meaning. They are subjective only in the sense that each one of us will perceive these things from the vantage point of our own senses, not anyone else's senses. Does this make sense? It's getting a little jargony here. Imagine that I had that, that really awful sculpture of the crucifix in, in, the, in the jar. And let's say that I had it right here, okay? And, and you could all see it. Okay, you would all be looking at it, but you'd only be looking at it using your own individual eyes. You could never see the sculpture from the vantage point of someone else, even the person sitting right next to you. You can never inhabit anyone's body but your own. You can never see anything but through your own eyes or hear anything but through your own ears. This is what we mean by subjectivity. We are all embodied subjects in an objective world. But who among you would say that just because you can only ever experience the world through your own perceptions, therefore the world must not exist? This doesn't seem like it follows. And and that's what I'm saying. It turns out that the objective and the subjective are not contraries. They're not mutually uh, exclusive. They are simply words that we must use to describe I and not I. They are necessary categories to distinguish myself as a creature. I'm the subject living in a created world that is outside of myself, the the objective world. By the way, the world is going to deny that there is such a thing as the created order. The world, if it's being consistent, we're talking about materialists, materialists, secularists, they're not going to say that we are creatures because the world is not a creation. This is the conclusion of modernism, capital M modernism. The world was not created, it is not ordered, There is no ordered creation. Everything in the world is a mere physical process. And now, now that we're in this postmodern thing, uh, the postmodernists are just finishing the job. If everything is merely a physical process, then that includes our own mind, and that includes our own perceptions. There's no reason to link our perception with reality. 
and uh, what happens in your mind is your reality. This, the, the multiverse craze that is uh, becoming the uh, deus ex machina for like every Marvel movie right now, which I liked it in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It was really good. But now it's like every Marvel movie is all about the multiverse. All of these universes happening. And so if we need to bring back any character, we can get them from some other universe in the multiverse. This is reflecting the changing anthropology in our culture where your reality is determined by your inner psychology. There's no external standard of truth by which to judge human propositions. There's no external standard of goodness by which to judge human behavior. And there's no external standard of beauty by which to judge human artifacts. So, okay, let me try. I'm going to start to move toward a conclusion here and then we can all go. A Christian aesthetic should begin by acknowledging that, number one, the range of human communication is wide. It is both verbal and nonverbal, both propositional and non-propositional. We are, we, God has made us powerful creatures in terms of what we can say. Just acknowledging that. Number two, moral judgment applies throughout that entire range. If we're able to communicate something... If there's content that can be communicated, then that content is subject to moral judgment. And number three, it is possible uh, that the artistic form will either support or conflict with the meaning of the factual surface content. So, for instance, when we pair words with music, the music may embellish appropriately the words or it may militate against the words. Now... There is good news here as well. If there's the potential for great moral defilement throughout the range of human communication, and there is, well, there's also the potential for great moral good. This part is unspoken in Matthew 15 because Jesus is just ripping on the Pharisees. They are lost. They're willfully blinded. They've rejected Jesus. And so he, in turn, is condemning them. The criticisms that have spilled from their mouths are not sincere defenses of the Jewish tradition. They're veiled denials of Jesus' own authority. And he calls them out on this. But there's a flip side to it. Believers in Jesus, we are legally redeemed. And as the process of sanctification continues, our hearts and our hands and our voices are enabled to communicate in truth and beauty. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 89. He says, With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. With my mouth. The things coming out of my mouth in Psalm 89 are making known the Lord's faithfulness to all generations. Sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 96. And many other psalms like it that call for God's people to create music and song reflecting the beauty and grandeur and goodness of the Lord. What is this song to consist of? In Psalm 96, blessing His name, telling of His salvation, declaring the Lord's glory in the nations. Colossians 3, people of God are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and this is a means of teaching and admonishing one another in the body of Christ. So, yes, there's great potential for uh, destruction in the things that come out of our mouths, but there's also the potential and indeed the requirement and the encouragement to create things that come out of the mouth that uh, exalt the Lord and edify one another. Friends, we are not the first generation of believers in the world. We're not the first ones to confront an ugly and subversive and God-denying culture. In fact, we have 
with varying degrees of quality and orthodoxy, we have 2,000 years of Christian expression from believers around the world. Not all of it is going to tally perfectly with our uh, detailed doctrinal beliefs. Probably not all of us in the same room tally with each other's detailed doctrinal beliefs. Nevertheless, we have such things as the Gregorian chants. We might not use them in our worship, but they do belong to us as pillars of our Christian culture. We have the great cathedrals of Europe. Again, we might not use them in our worship, nor do we have the budget for that, nor maybe do we have the sensibilities for that ornate architecture. Perhaps we understand that as an unnecessary distraction and an an overly gaudy expression. But those massive buildings do proclaim the grandeur of God. We have philosophers like Augustine and Pascal. We have poets like Dunn and Milton and George Herbert and Christina Rossetti and G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot. We have Bach and Brahms and Vaughan Williams and Arvo Parrott. We have many, many people and artists to look to for expressions, appropriate expressions of God's goodness. Even better, for our worship, we have the Reformed Psalter. We have the Lutheran chorales and the Moravian hymns and the Southern Harmony. We have Vaughan Williams' hymns, modern hymns, ancient and modern. And we even have Jonathan Landry Cruz. Let's go! Now these are not infallible authorities. They all have their idiosyncrasies. They have their issues, their problems, especially Jonathan. But these are men who have cherished the Bible. They've obeyed the psalmist's injunction to sing a new song. Not by changing the eternal truths, but by holding up, as it were, a mirror to reflect some aspect of God's glory to reflect Him anew to His people. The Christian hymn tradition gives us insight into the, faith, into the life of faith from different time periods, different nations, different languages. And most of all, of course, we have the Scriptures as our bedrock of authoritative truth, example of aesthetic beauty, and the ultimate revelation of Jesus in this age. And we have the Spirit of Christ in our hearts who will open up our eyes to see the wondrous things in the law of the Lord. So I think, uh, friends, if we acknowledge the wide range of human communication, and if we acknowledge the moral implications that accompany it, and if we reject the secular lie of total subjectivity, and if we clasp the good aspects of the tradition close, and if we clasp the scriptures closer, if we teach the creeds and the hymns and the psalms and the gospels and the epistles to the next generation of believers, we will be well on our way, I think to a Christian aesthetic. Shall I? I you ended right out of order, I think. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. Extend for five minutes if anybody has questions. Okay. Uh, okay. So good that I can... Well, I'm going to let Jonathan actually put uh, two cents in here. I, I would say there, there's a, the lines of judgment here are going to be very hazy because, of course, none of us, when we express something about God, are going to do it perfectly well. And this is something the early church acknowledged, too. Our language for God is not univocal, nor is it equivocal. It has to be analogical. And yet, hopefully, we're not blaspheming God. 
Well, okay, so, right, so the, so the question is, are, are, when we try to describe God, uh, how effective are we at doing this? Is what we say about God not at all connected to what God is, or is it perfectly a description of what God is? And the answer is, it's neither of those things. It's not that we can't say anything about God because he's completely transcendent, nor is it that we can perfectly describe God because he's completely imminent. We have to describe God, to the extent that we do this at all, ourselves, analogically, which means we have to use, God is like this thing. God is like a mighty fortress. God is like a lion in this created world that's beautiful and big and strong and it's going to lay down his life. We must use analogy. Now, uh, part of this, I think, just to get back to the question, is going to be the intent of the person using it, um, uh, whether or not it's blasphemous, but also part of it is um, the quality of metaphor that has been used. If it's a poor metaphor, uh, then yes, it might be, it might be blasphemous. So, or a poor form. Yeah. So I'm just thinking of a, of a best-selling novel in which I, be- I haven't read it. I believe that God is portrayed uh, as, a, as a black woman, as a black human being. This, I think, would be a, a, approaching blasphemy on the scale of whatever we're talking about um, in a way where Aslan, I don't think, would be even close to that. You, follow up, John? No, no. Right, right. yeah, I, I, I retract what I said. Yeah, intent shouldn't matter, right? Because, because ultimately, meaning does not lie within author's intent. It, it, the meaning inheres in the, uh, in the form itself. So, yep. So, we don't have time for this, but what I would like to talk a little bit about is that, in some ways, the examples you gave are, are somewhat easy to kind of pick out. Where I think some of the challenges is those things where we would, at face value, would think, oh, that's bad. Yeah. Like, it really isn't. Like, in example, at the time of Christ, many of the things that Christ was portraying was taken by the religious yeah. as this is blasphemy. Yeah. Right? Now, we know more now from most of the race God that in some ways they didn't. But I think there's sometimes some examples where we think, oh, this is a great example, where if you go into it, it maybe isn't as good as we think it is. Not the best example, but sometimes, you know, Thank you. But I uh, appreciate your good example. Thank you. Anybody want to find a question? I think I have one for you. I actually have two. Um, talking about architecture, you want to talk about our building? It's nice, yeah. It's too small for your. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, this connects, this connects uh, so I'm going to make a weird connection here, and that is that there's a connection between architecture and the fonts that you use in the program here. So if you look at, um, we, we have a human need to dress up and to ornament things that are important to our lives. And so uh, oftentimes we'll use fonts that have serifs. They're called serifs, and they're little pointy things that stick up out of the, 
out of the individual letters in a way of ornamenting them. It doesn't make it easier to read. In fact, studies have shown that the easiest font to read is like Arial or something like that. That's completely stripped down and devoid of ornamentation. Nevertheless, Arial would just be a boring and you know, that's the font that Dwight Schrute uses when saying it is your birthday for the, for the birthday party. And the whole point is that he doesn't have a sense of what's appropriate for this celebratory context. Now, what's the connection here? The connection would be that, um, that doorways have uh, ornamentation around them. That it's, not just a, it's not just an opening in a building, but that it's a place where human beings come in and out of this gathering. So there's a, there's a double door and there's all these details. Um, I mean, the pattern of the tiles on the floor. This, what, what's this all about? Like, this is a significant object for you Presbyterians. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it's ornamented in a certain way that makes it special, where just a, you know, just a, a, a black box in a Bauhaus style that has no uh, uh, archway or anything on it would just be boring and wrong. Yeah. The, yeah. Yep, there's that. Look at that. What's the, what's the purpose of... Um, What's the purpose of ornamentation? The answer is there's no, there's no utilitarian purpose for it whatsoever. That's the point. We're acknowledging that we as human beings have more than utilitarian concerns. We're spiritual beings as well as animals. We're not just animals. We, are, we have souls as well. And we come to this place for those souls to be nourished. And so that's reflected in the ornamentation in the building. Oh, that's a really bad answer. Okay. Thank you. Okay.